So my brother told me once that everybody is allowed one vice. If that's true, I have significantly ignored his advice. <laughs> but let me introduce you to one of my harmless vices. This right here is my stack of Dan Brown, Robert Langdon mystery novels. And I love them. It started for me back in... 2003, actually, or 2004, when the Da Vinci Code came out, uh, Christy and I were newly married, and, and pretty well everybody around the pool at our resort on our honeymoon had a copy of the Da Vinci Code. I'd never heard of it, but by the time I came home from the honeymoon, I had ordered myself a copy because I had to read this book. And once I read the Da Vinci Code, I was hooked. I, just, I read them all. I mean, the thing I love about the, the Robert Langdon novels by Dan Brown... Um, it, there's just, it's kind of layer upon layer of mystery for me. They're, I mean, first of all, they're mystery novels, which I love. It's like a gigantic puzzle, right? There's an engineering side to my personality that, is, that thrives on solving puzzles, right? And so there's a, they're, they're mystery novels, which is awesome in and of itself. But the way Dan Brown does mystery novels is awesome because at every step of the way, Robert Langdon has to advance to the next stage of the mystery by solving another riddle. So it's a riddle inside of a mystery novel where, or a series of riddles inside a mystery novel. So the whole thing is a puzzle and, and it's riddled with riddles. And then when he solves all the riddles and gets to the bottom of the mystery, he gets involved in this like secret association or this, this clandestine organization like the Illuminati or the Masonic Temple or the inner workings of the Catholic Church. Ooh. Right? There's this secret organization at the heart of this puzzle and this mystery. These books to me with the layers of mystery, they're, they're, they're like a, a mystery. What's that? It's like a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside of an enigma. And it just makes my brain hurt reading through these books and trying to figure out who done it. And I love it. I love every single minute of it. And I love the moment of revelation at the end when everything just kind of comes together. It's a beautiful thing. And I feel like in some really superficial way, that's kind of what we're getting into in the series on the parables of Jesus. See, we've been studying the gospel according to Matthew for the last three years or so. And uh, we're now firmly entrenched in part two of Matthew's gospel. Part one is the first ten chapters. And it's really just all about who Jesus is. That he's God walking among us in the form of the person, Jesus of Nazareth. Who's God's representative on earth in order to implement God's reign on earth. So God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. And Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. And the way Jesus does this, that's like Matthew 1 to 4 is who he is. And the way he does it is through his powerful and authoritative teaching. For example, the Sermon on the Mount in 5, 6, 7. And through his powerful and authoritative healing in 8 and 9 and 10. And that's who Jesus is, and that's what he does. But then this last spring, we got into Matthew chapter 11, which is the beginning of part two. And, and part two is all about how people react to who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And what we discovered in the spring is that people don't react all that well to Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, people are they're disappointed with Jesus in a Messiah. 
as a Messiah. They're, they're strangely apathetic and skeptical, even critical. They're um, spiritually arrogant. They're overly religious. They, they're confrontational and accusatory. They, they're, they, they're looking for signs all the time. They, they just, in, in so many ways, fall short of being fully devoted to responding to Jesus in faith. And that's why as we turn to Matthew chapter 13 this morning, what we get in Matthew chapter 13 is kind of Jesus' response to people's response to who Jesus is and to what he does. This is Jesus now speaking into the reality that so often people's responses to him are something less than what he would have hoped for. It says in Matthew 13, verse 1, it says that same day, so it's just picking up from the stories that we were studying this spring, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. And such large crowds gathered round him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables. Jesus is um, addressing this enormous crowd on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they're kind of crushing in on him and pressing him back. And it's hard for him to to have this conversation with everybody. And so he gets into a boat that's sitting right there. And he, he backs it away from shore just a little bit. And now... He's got a bit of a stage and he can look out and see the crowd of people who are all gathered on the, on the grassy slopes of the Sea of Galilee. And it's kind of like this natural amphitheater and Jesus begins to teach and he fills the whole space with the sound of his voice as he teaches them, Matthew says, in parables. He told them many things in parables. The Greek word parable really just means to throw down alongside. That's what, literally is what it means, to throw down alongside. In other words, the word parable means to put two things beside each other so as to invite a comparison, which is why Jesus begins so many of his parables by saying the kingdom of heaven is kind of like this. And the point is if you can understand this, the, the parable, then you will have discerned something about what the kingdom of God is like. The word parable is simply uh, used to describe, you know, proverbs and riddles and maxims and allegories and fables and metaphors and similes and images. Basically, any kind of teaching or communication where the point is not being directly stated, but where something is being said that's intended to point you towards a tr the truth, which is somewhere else. In that sense, a parable is a, is a little bit like a poem. It works on you indirectly. It works on you emotionally. It doesn't just... Um, it's not a tweet. It's done 140 characters of this, you know, think this. You know, this is, it's not plain. It's not simple. It's not on the surface. It's not direct. It's metaphorical. It's emotional. It's symbolic. And the only way to get at the, the meaning that's contained inside a parable is to, is to work at it. To meditate on it. To reflect on it. To contemplate. The word actually in Hebrew, the word for meditate is the word mumble. To just mumble it through, to talk it through, to turn it around in your head. And, 
And with the kind of teaching that a parable is, the more you turn it around in your head, the more it begins to unfold until it eventually reveals the spiritual truth that's contained inside. But you're not going to get at it if you don't do the work. Which is exactly why the disciples in verse 10 challenge this strategy of Jesus for teaching in this way. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? They're saying, listen, Jesus, you see how badly these people are already responding to you. They're not getting it. It's not, the penny's not dropping. People aren't cluing in. Now's not the time to get kind of all obscure and mysterious about it. Now's the time to get direct and plain and clear and to just say to people, listen, this is the way that it is. Why are you choosing this um, convoluted way of preaching? People are going to miss it. And in verse 11, Jesus replies and says, I'll tell you why. Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak in parables, because those seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. The disciples, kind of concerned for the people, for the crowds, they come to Jesus and say, listen, why are you making your teaching so difficult? Why not just say it plainly? And Jesus, with this response that has to sound like their worst nightmare, Jesus' response is, because I don't want them to understand. You, you know, you have some knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. I, to you, I, I want you Uh, to understand more, but them, they don't understand really anything at all. And and so by the time I'm done teaching, they're actually not even going to be confident of the stuff they already know. They're going to know less by the time I'm done teaching in parables. And do you know why, he says? Because those are the kind of people who even though they see, they can't perceive. And even though they hear, they can't comprehend or understand anything that I'm saying. Jesus Um, is describing the crowds and he's saying, it sounds like he's saying these people are idiots. They just don't understand anything that I'm saying. I have to admit, I'm kind of sympathetic to the plight of the crowds in this story because I've been in that situation, so have you. Your boss comes and explains your next assignment and she goes over everything and she explains everything the way she wants it done. And as she walks away, you're watching her walk away and you're thinking, I don't have a sweet clue what she just said to me. I don't understand anything about what I was just asked to do. Right? You've been there, right? Or you're, you're watching your grandkids babysitting and, and your, your kids are about to leave the house and you say to them, listen, before you go, show me how to work the TV again. And they grab the four remotes that you need to have and they explain to you how they stream Netflix off of Apple TV and so you got to switch to this input. And by, and by the time they're done explaining it to you and walk out the door, you're like, that might as well have been a foreign language. I'm just going to read a book, I think, is what I'm going to do. right? Or you've sat through a lecture or, or better yet, you've gone to an exam and you've opened up the exam book and you don't recognize a single thing on any page. I, I've been in that situation. I, maybe I've told this story before, but in third year digital communications, 
in ha- at the midpoint, it was just communications actually, because at the midpoint, we had been studying analog communications, and at the midterm, I had a 95% average. And I thought, well, this course is easy. I don't need to go to lecture anymore. And so I stopped going to the lectures because I needed that time to work on other stuff. And when I strolled into the finals, I strolled in not really realizing that somewhere just after the midterm, the prophet switched to digital communications, which is a whole different animal altogether. And I didn't know the first thing about digital communications. I sat down, I opened the exam booklet and did not recognize anything. I could tell that it was math. But I, so I just started writing numbers and I just started, in my head I was kind of inventing ways to solve problems that I didn't even really understand. I was making stuff up and I was like, I think I would start this math problem this way and I would just write down as much as I could and then I'd go to the next question. But I was literally making stuff up, I didn't know. And, and, And then after a while I ran out of stuff to make up so I just started writing down in words, this is a math exam, I'm writing down in words stuff that I know about analog and digital communication. I'm just writing information and And after an hour, the proctor gets up and he says, okay, an hour has passed and if you want to go, you can leave. And so I got up and I took the exam booklet. It wasn't quite this thick, but I took the exam booklet to the prof and I I handed it to him and I said, listen, I've calculated that I need 15%, 1-5% on this exam to pass your course and I promise you I will never take another communications course as long as I live. What do you think? And he took my exam and he flipped through it and he handed it back to me and he said, I think you need to write some more. (laughs) An hour later, I gave him the book back and I said, I'll see you in the fall. But I did, I passed. I got, I think, 21% on that final exam. (laughs) But it sounds like Jesus is talking to people like that who just, I am looking at these problems and I don't understand the first thing. And and he kind of sounds like some kind of demented prof who's saying, you know what? I'm going to help the A students. If you have an A minus, I will help you get an A plus. But if you have a C minus, you're on your own and you're going to fail out of the course. Like he's weeding, like he's weeding people out of the course. Except in, if you read verse 14 and Jesus finishes his explanation, you realize this isn't at all what he's doing. Jesus says, in them, in the crowds, is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. It says, you'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For, and this is the reason, because this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their ears and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Jesus said, the problem with the crowds is not their ignorance. The problem with the crowds is that their heart has become callous and hard and impenetrable. And because their heart is hard, their ears are shut and they're not really listening. And because their heart is hard, their eyes are closed. Actually, the the text literally says their eyes are heavy. They're they're dozing off. They're putting their head on their desk and falling asleep right in class because they don't care. Jesus says the problem with these people is not their ignorance. The problem with them is their heart. They're not coming with a heart that is open and soft and eager to understand the spiritual truth that I'm trying to teach because 
Because if their heart was soft and if their heart was open and if they came and they were eager to engage, he said, well, then they would see and they would hear and they would understand and they would turn to me and I would heal them. What Jesus is saying about parables, and this is important because we're studying parables for this whole month. What Jesus is saying is you're going to miss it entirely unless you come with a heart that is soft and open and ready to engage, ready to do the work, ready to engage in contemplating and reflecting and meditating on the parable, ready to, to be turning it around in your brain and allowing the, the, the symbolism and the metaphor to work as it slowly opens up. And that's when you discover the spiritual truth that Jesus is eager for us to embrace. So as we enter the series, I guess the question is, how's your heart? Do you come here hard and closed? Do you come here kind of with your arms crossed with a bit of skepticism? That's how often we come, right? Like we come with this attitude that says, you know, when I understand what you're saying, then I will decide whether or not I believe. In the 5th century AD, St. Augustine said, not I understand that I might believe. St. Augustine said, I believe that I might understand. That I come with a heart that is trusting and faithful and open and soft and eager for, for God to teach me. And it's with that open heart that I bring to Christ that allows me to see and to hear and to understand and then to be changed. Down in verse 34, Matthew pauses his sequence of parables a second time in order to again address the issue of why Jesus teaches in parables. It says in verse 34, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. And so it was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Now Matthew loves, we've seen this lots in Matthew. Matthew loves to demonstrate from the Old Testament of the Bible that Jesus is in continuity with what God has always been up to in Israel. That Jesus is the culmination and the climax of God's story. That Jesus has been the purpose and the goal all along of what God has been doing in the world. And so every time Matthew has a chance to relate what Jesus is doing back to what was going on in the Old Testament, he always jumps at the chance. And in this instance, it's the word parable in Psalm 78 verse 2 that catches Matthew's attention. Jesus is teaching in parables. And, and in Psalm 78, it says, I'm going to open my mouth in parables. It's an interesting connection, actually, because if you go back to Psalm 78, the psalmist who says, I'm going to open my mouth in parables, actually goes on to teach in a way that's very unlike what Jesus means when he uses parables. In fact, they're not, strictly speaking, they're not really parables the way we think of parables at all. In fact, what the psalmist does all the way through Psalm 78, starting at verse 9 and going all the way down to 72, is he just tells stories from Israel's history as he understands it. 
And he weaves this grand arc of the narrative of Israel's history. And he tells stories over and over again about how though God had engaged and God had intervened miraculously and mightily in order to rescue Israel, in order to protect them and provide for them and and to save them, though God had acted savingly towards Israel, Israel's response to God over and over again was to rebel against him, to walk away from him, to sin against him, and then to experience all of the pain and the chaos and the turmoil of the consequences of their sin. And then God would get all merciful and forgive on them and he would come in and he would save them again from the consequence of their sin. He'd forgive them and he would put them back on the path and then they'd rebel again. And, and the parable, remember a parable is, is a teaching that's meant to point to something else. The way the psalm is a parable is that what the psalmist does is he lines up all these stories that conform to this pattern of rebellion and forgiveness in order to reveal a deep truth about Israel's relationship with God, which is this. That though God has been wholeheartedly devoted to Israel, Israel has not been wholeheartedly devoted to God. Or say it the other way, though Israel has not been wholeheartedly devoted to God, God has remained wholeheartedly devoted to Israel. As you read the stories, as you meditate on the psalm and the pattern emerges, suddenly something that you had never seen before begins to take shape. It's the way parables work. They're kind of like the the magic eye paintings from the 90s. Anybody remembers this? I'm going to put one up on the screen. The, the, the magic eye paintings from the 90s. It, these are interesting things if you've never played with one of these before. The way these work is you're not supposed to look at the painting, right? You're supposed to train your eyes to kind of look through the painting. I find I'm kind of crossing my eyes a little bit to kind of look through the painting. If you do that, I don't know how many of you are good at these. I'm terrible at them. But if you do that, if you're able to train yourself to see in a brand new way, suddenly what emerges from the painting is a hidden picture, a picture that you never saw before suddenly what was once hidden is now revealed. Now in your location, for those of you who have been staring at this painting now and not listening to what I'm saying, um, somebody yell out in your location what the picture was that was hidden in this painting. It was a heart. I don't know if anybody yelled that out at your location, but it's a heart that was hidden in the painting. But this is exactly what a parable is. You, You train yourself in a new way to see. You train yourself to engage with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul. You, you, you train yourself patiently to stare and to look and to gaze and to analyze. You stay situated and you examine and you scour the painting. And the longer you sit staring at the painting, the more pronounced the picture becomes. And it's the same way with the parable that if you can train yourself to sit with a parable, to turn it over, to see in a brand new way, then suddenly what happens is a truth begins to be revealed that you had never seen before. And when that truth emerges... That truth has the power to change your life. In verse 6, the psalmist tells us why he is going to speak in parables. He says this, so that the next generation would know these stories 
And every child, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children, and this is why. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. The, the psalmist says, the, if we can learn to see with God's eyes, the history of Israel said this, the truth of the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of his people can come to the surface if we can sit in that truth. It will inspire faith and faithfulness in the lives of those who embrace it, whose hearts are soft and open. We come to the parables with soft and open hearts, ready to engage and to do the work of reflection and contemplation and meditation, to let the the parables do their work. We sit patiently and stare and we wait until the truth emerges and then if our heart is soft and open we respond with faith and faithfulness and so the question is what's the condition of your heart today there's one more passage In Matthew 13, it's right at the end of this section that we're going to look at this month. Where Matthew talks again about why Jesus teaches in parables. He says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore and they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets but threw the bad away. And this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now we're not going to analyze this parable this morning because this parable, the point of it is almost exactly identical to the parable we're going to study in two weeks called the parable of the weeds. In fact, this last verse that I read, verse 50, is a verbatim quote of Matthew 13, verse 42, which is Jesus' um, explanation of the parable of the weeds. So the point, we're not going to talk about weeping and gnashing of teeth. We'll do that in a couple of weeks. It makes me think that the reason Matthew includes this parable is not because of the parable, but to set up the conversation that follows. In verse 51, it says, Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied, which is a remarkable thing because as we'll see throughout this series, in the earlier stages of the chapter, they don't understand anything. And it seems that by the end of the chapter, they do. And what has happened in their engagement with the parables of Jesus is they have slowly been schooled in how to see the magic eye painting. They slowly have engaged in how to understand these teachings. And God is beginning to train them. And and he says to them in verse 52, Therefore, he says, every teacher of the law who has been discipled in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Jesus is pleased that his disciples have be, are coming to the place where their hearts are soft and their minds are engaged and they're ready to understand and unfold the spiritual truth in the, in the parable. And he says to them, as you become this way, you become like a, um, like a homeowner who's throwing a lavish party for his guests. And in order to host this amazing party, he goes into his storerooms, into his closets, and he pulls out treasures, both new and old. He gets his great-grandma's 
china, the dishes she got on her wedding day, and he sets them out on the table. He gets Aunt Betty's silverware, and he polishes it up, and he lays it out. He, he, he gets that new glass or the new crystal wine glasses that they just bought when they were traveling ab- abroad last year. He goes into the cellar and gets the most expensive bottle of wine that he owns, and then he whips up the most luxurious meal that he can imagine, and then he welcomes the guests with hospitality and generosity, and he lavishes on them gifts and favor and honor with the treasures that he has both new and old and Jesus says this is the way that it is among those who have learned to understand the parable they become like scribes who were teachers who were scholars first of the Old Testament and then teachers and then administrators of justice Jesus says you you become like a scholar who's now been given access to the deeper realities of the kingdom of heaven. The deeper spiritual truths and fresh insights. But not just for you. You've been given them like all the treasures we have in our home to share. You've been given them for an act of hospitality and generosity. You've been given this insight to become a teacher, to lavish this generously on others, both the depths of the old truths, but also the exhilarating fresh insights that the Spirit is revealing to your soft heart. But you become not just a teacher who's walking with others to understand. You become like an administrator of justice who is participating now in the coming of the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. You become a participant in what God is doing in the world because your heart was soft and open. And God, and you were willing to engage in the work of meditating on the parables. And because you did, they began to reveal to you a truth, fresh insight about what the kingdom of God is like in a way that inspires faith and faithfulness in your spirit. And it brings you to a place where you take this, these treasures, these insights that you've been given, and you, and you spread them out for others, both in your conversation And in your living so that through you the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we're studying Matthew 13. That's why Jesus teaches in parables. And that's why we're coming this month with hearts filled with faith. Soft and open. Ready to engage and meditate and reflect that we may be changed. That the world may be changed. And so the question this morning is, how is your heart? Are you a part of the core? Are you like one of the disciples, those who are coming with soft and open hearts, those who have been pressing into the realities of the kingdom, those to whom Jesus is going to give even more insight? Or are you like the crowds, standing aloof on the shore, hearts Hard and closed, ears shut, eyes drooping, not paying attention and missing the opportunity to perceive and to hear and to understand and to turn and be healed 
in order that you might become a part of this beautiful thing that God is doing in the world. I'm inviting you for the next bunch of weeks to come with hearts soft and open as one of the disciples that we may be inspired to faith and faithfulness for our sake and for the sake of the world. Let's pray together. Father, soften our hearts. Open us up. Father, I know that there are some who are coming. I I know people are coming for all sorts of reasons this morning. Some with hurts and baggage, some with skepticism and questions, some with doubts, some with fear, some with concern. God, would you meet us right where we are in this space and over the next month? Would you create a space of safety, a space of healing, a space where we feel like we can come with soft and trusting hearts that we that we might come ready to believe in order that we might understand that you might call us into the deeper truths and realities of the life that you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.